Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. I'm Alex Loudon, Innovation Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. The Catapult is a world-leading innovation and research centre for offshore renewables, and our mission is to accelerate the UK's wave, wind and tidal energy sectors. Our monthly podcast is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and the way that we will harness natural resources to meet our future energy needs. In this episode, you'll hear highlights from our Robotics and Offshore Renewables live event, which took place in London earlier this month. So today we're very lucky to have three people at the forefront of these two sectors, world leaders in both robotics and offshore renewable energy. So without further ado, I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Sara Bernardini. I am a professor uh, in artificial intelligence at Royal Holloway, University of London. And my area of research is uh, intelligent autonomous systems for extreme environments. And in fact, I'm now involved in a project with the Catapults that is about developing the world's first fully autonomous uh, robotic platform for inspection, maintenance and repair of offshore wind farms. Hi, I'm Ian Wallace. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer of Rovco. We're a UK company that's pioneering subsea robotic inspections and applications of AI to data analysis. We've developed a series of subslam camera systems that combine computer vision, machine learning and AI and autonomy and also an intelligent data platform for delivering the results of inspections to end users. We also work with a couple and we're both a sort of technology developer and a service provider. Hi and good morning. Uh, I'm Anthony Gordon, working for GE Renewables Offshore Wind. I'm the Stayshore Programme Manager, um, which is responsible for bringing new uh, digital and robotic techniques and operations uh, to our wind farms, with obviously the ultimate aim of reducing risk, manual and repetitive tasks, and um, hopefully cost as well. And it's also do- doing that by driving automation into our supply chain uh, and operations. I think the logical place to start is is why why robotics and offshore renewables and i think a lot of the time dull dirty and dangerous is often cited as the reasons why robotics might be suited to a task and certainly there's a, a lot of that in offshore renewables for instance we have um rope access inspection teams abseiling down blades we have a lot of diver-led operations so interested to get kind of open thoughts from the panel to start with on on why robotics and offshore winds do you agree with those reasons do you think there are further reasons um thanks sorry i think the what well, the why is interesting but i think the real question is when so the discussion i have with a lot of people in this industry especially if someone's maybe being a bit conservative i kind of start by saying well at the moment we're sending people out on boats who in my business are staring at video screens driving remote control submarines around that's clearly not the future people hanging off blades is clearly not the future you know the future the robot submarines drive themselves it's not people staring at the video screens it's computers watching the data it's not people dangling off wind turbines it's robots flying around right this is the future in 100 years time we're not doing things the same way and i think anyone would agree on that anyone watching would agree on that so then the real debate is when Right. So when, when does the change happen? What change happens when? And, and then to get to your why, is why is that change driven then? So I think for me, that's the interesting question. Um, so I would kind of say to my other panelists, think about like the when and what drives that change then is the, is the actual interesting bit there. Um, so yeah, I don't know if anyone's got thoughts on that. Or do you disagree with me that eventually that's the future? 
No, no, I don't disagree. I, I, I think um, that when uh, it's an important question mm. because uh, working in this uh, industry, I also uh, experienced some resistance from the operators uh, in wanting to use this uh, technology and trusting the technology. So I guess our uh, job is to make technology robust enough that can be trusted by the operators and then they can feel uh, still uh, in charge of the mission, even if they are not there, uh, but they rem remotely control the mission. And so this is um, what I'm trying to focus on in, in my research to develop robust um, autonomy uh, technology so that operators will be able to uh, feel they own the mission if mm. they are not there in person. Okay, so I guess you're looking to provide the why to the when, if you like, yes. why now? Because we trust it. Yeah. So I guess you maybe have a different input on this as to who, you know, why are you... Yeah, again, again, I think because obviously the programme I'm looking after, that's kind of the key message of let's kind of look at that. And it's uh, obviously looking at the risk you want to eliminate and reduce it as your first kind of options. And I think that's what robots can do potentially. It's the elimination to uh, humans of that risk of hanging on ropes, going into those kind of dangerous uh, confined spaces, et cetera. And it's, uh, you're eliminating that kind of element to it. Um, I think the yeah the, the when topic is actually quite interesting because again it's a when are people ready as well for this? Um, I think there's obviously resistance potentially to to change, um, and that kind of also pushes it there. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think as well you've obviously got a push from people of um, you want to be smarter with what you're doing as well, and I think robots allow people to be smarter with what's happening, and you take away that and then focus on other tasks which are more value add. And I guess you, all three of you are looking at this in, in slightly different timescales. Um, as an academic, Sarah, I guess naturally you're looking at slightly further out technologies. Um, Ian, you're looking to commercialize in the, the short to medium term. Um, and, and I guess GE are looking to uh, provide uh, value to your customers almost immediately or, or in the very short term. So do you think that changes the, the drivers behind the adoption of robotics? Do you think those different timescales have a have an impact? I can go in again. This I think um, to some extent, yes. I mean, I I I mean, so I'm chief scientific officer of Rovco. I'm focused on what what is now possible, and I always I glibly describe what I do as stuff working on stuff that's neither academically interesting nor practically useful. Right? <laughs> of course, it's about bridging the gap, right? Um, taking the stuff that is academically proven, making it practically useful, and um, seeing where we can put stuff to work. So yeah, we are focused on, um, in some states we're developing the technology, it's kind of midterm, like you say, and some stuff is stuff we can do now. It's it's often not as black and white as all that, right? I mean, I can give examples of what we do. Our camera system lets us get lovely 3D data underwater, right? And from the long-term perspective, this is, well, it's a camera system that can understand the world around it and knows where it is. This is clearly a core component of a future autonomous system, a robot that knows where it is and can navigate. If I flip it the other way and say near term, the benefit to our customers is we can measure things underwater. And you get back to like risk and inspection, what mm -hmm. customers want. They want the, you know, they might commission a video survey, but the actual thing they want to know is how far apart is that? Has that moved since last time? Is this installed correctly? So yeah, it's, I, I think it's it's a real sliding scale, but we're always looking for things that can be commercialized in the near term or ideally useful now, and then also feeds into the future. So, Sarah, how do you approach 
um, looking at what people are going to need in the future, longer term. Further yeah, along. as I said, um, I am uh, involved in this project with the Catapult Memory, it's called, and uh, this is a very ambitious project because we are trying to develop a fully autonomous uh, robotic uh, platform that will do uh, inspection, maintenance, and repair. And there is nothing like that out there. Uh, and so it's very uh, difficult to create a comprehensive and fully integrated uh, multi-robotic platform. Uh, and so our challenge is really how to coordinate different and heterogeneous robots, how to involve the operators in such a way that, as I said, they trust the technology. And also, of course, uh, each robotic assets need to perform a sophisticated task. So uh, we have the coordination issue, but we have also um, the efficacy of each uh, robotic asset. Uh, so this is a two-year uh, project, So, uh, but we feel that we have to work on this uh, for a, a few years more uh, in order to achieve our final goal. Uh, but I think uh, that the different pieces are, are there. Uh, it's a matter of putting them together to create uh, you know, a, a fully integrated uh, system. Sure. And Anthony, where do you think we are now, as of today, is is GE actively utilizing robotic technologies already, or is this the Stay Ashore program more about looking at how they can contribute down the line? Um, it's looking at how they can contribute down the line, and, and obviously trying to bring those into our operations and, and uh, looking at what we can do. So I think it's a, it's very much in the considered in the roadmap for what we're looking at. But it's a, um, if we can't bring something now, brilliant. If not, we've obviously got that. Uh, program uh, over a number of years to uh, review and implement and, and see what we can bring. And so um, moving on a little bit, so Sarah and Ian, you both uh, have a, a shared past uh, working in the space sector. How has that uh, experience enabled you uh, and, and helped you working in, in offshore, which is a very, very different environment by all accounts, but presumed there must be a huge amount of transferable knowledge and skills. Uh, yes, um, for sure. Like um, my area of research is uh, AI planning. And so this is about how like a robot or an agent um, starting from an initial situation plan to reach a goal. And so this is really general purpose technology that can be applied across different sectors. So as you said, I, I started uh, with uh, space mission operations that also clearly require full uh, autonomy. Uh, and then then I transferred this to completely different um, topics, like, for example, even uh, virtual agents to work with children to develop social skills and to extreme environments. And so it is um, the same technology, the same algorithms, but what it changes is how you model your problem and the initial specification of, of your problem. So I could reuse a lot of the techniques I developed um, initially for NASA. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's how I got into working in offshore is it's a lot of it is exactly the same problems. I mean, it's not kind of obvious. I mean, previously, I was doing field trials in the Atacama Desert, which is the driest place on Earth. And now I'm putting robots underwater. It seems like it would be the opposite. But um, a lot of the problems are actually the same. It's You've got an uh, inaccessible location. You can't or you don't want to send a person. Um, so you're sending a robot. It's very hard to do any maintenance to a robot. You have very low bandwidth connections. You can't get data off it. So it absolutely must be reliable. Absolutely must be well tested. Um, and it wants to see and understand its surroundings well. It wants to capture good data. It wants to get 
get it wants to somehow distill that and get it back for human analysis. And a lot of these problems are very common between the two. And I think in some ways it leads the way. So it suggests how things might be done. If you, I mean, I remember being at a event of a robotics event and someone was asking the question, "Oh, how can we reliably operate robots for months at a time remotely if we can't, you know, get access to turn them off?" And it's like, well. Humans have put robots on Mars for tens of years and no one could go and turn them off and on again, right? So there is a model for how it can be done and there's maybe something to go out there. And I think more specifically in terms of the way that uh, what I would think of a semi-supervised autonomy is done, like Sarah mentioned, the planning. So a big part of how Mars rovers get operated is you create a plan for the day, the robot executes the plan and then you get the data back. And I can see that because of the restricted communication subsea um, Specifically, and even if you're not subsea, even if you're looking at the top side, you don't always, with weather and so on, guarantee high bandwidth links. Um, I imagine similar strategies will, will yeah. be used. So I think there are a lot of parallels. So, Anthony, from GE's perspective, um, how, how do you start to think about planning robotics into future service offerings? Um, you mentioned that, that it's very much in line with your roadmap. Um, how do you start to think about bringing these new technologies through into what is part of a, a wider offering to the industry? Um, yeah, again, I think it's the consideration of the of the program. Um, we're looking at robotics and, and what tasks it can take, and as I kind of mentioned, it's repetitive service tasks. Um, what can be replaced with robotics? Um, and I know Ian mentioned obviously some of the items such as people hanging off ropes and the, what the future looks like, and kind of that risk element as well, taking that away. So I think it's it's very much looking at that on the roadmap and where they can go. Um, and I think as well, um, kind of digitalization and analytics is kind of one of the next big phases. It's obviously kind of already been looked at and uh, it's obviously focused uh, for G and, and others. Um, so I think that's kind of the one of the next stages as well is, is that. There's a, robotics has the potential to generate huge amounts of data for uh, the customers. Um, do you think this provides a, a challenge to them? What are they going to do with all this data? Or do you think it's actually an opportunity of they've got the uh, chance to understand significantly more about their assets and about their structures to make better decisions? Well, I guess uh, it's both. <laughs> so clearly um, to do machine learning, you need a lot of data and the more data, the better. Uh, so we see it as an opportunity. Uh, however, clearly um, the data themselves don't uh, give you much, right? So you need to have the technology in order to extract knowledge from the data. And that's not always straightforward. And also um, in our project, for example, we try to do a lot of uh, processing uh, on uh, um, offshore and, and send uh, onshore only uh, valuable uh, data for the operator because we want to be careful in not overloading like the operator with too much data. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's an opportunity to uh, understand better the situation and for the robot to have a full awareness of uh, what is going on, what they need to do next. But at the same time, the amount of data needs to be managed well uh, to analyze them and also not to transfer too much data to human operators and only valuable data. I think it's interesting to talk about the data point and also to go back to what you were saying about how you're planning introduction of robotics and you're talking about um, 
the things robots do. It's easy to think of robots and autonomy just as the moving bits of metal, right? Like how does robot? But that's that's not most of the job. Right? A lot. If I think of an offshore inspection, you've got a large vessel with lots of people in the boat. There's only a couple of people driving robots at any one time. There are far more people looking at the data. The data, in a lot of cases, is the product, right? It's mm -hmm. the someone pays for a survey or a inspection, but what they actually want is the data that comes out of it. And so that's for, for us, a lot of our focus is on that. It's their data platform is how can we take this data, how can we process it? And you talk about things that robots can do better in terms of risk, but it's it's the, you mentioned dull, dirty and dangerous, it's the dull. It's I, like my favorite phrase around this is computers have like a superhuman capacity for tedium, right? You can ask <laughs> them to do super boring jobs that can give you new insights. So things like count all the bolts on my structure, watch this video, you know? And I think that tedium point is really important as well because humans have a very known capacity to make mistakes, especially if they're asked to do the same thing over and over again. So actually uh, that quality piece that you mentioned earlier comes in uh, in a big way there, doesn't it? But this, this also speaks to risk and like one of the advantages of like when you see um, data, but you need you need the data to understand the problem. You need to also, in some cases, measure human performance. So, in terms of the industry appetite for autonomy and robotics technology, a lot of it is around risk. People don't want to try the, you know, try the unknown thing. And I think I guess that data and digitalization piece is the other half of the station program, from uh, the robotic side of things. So I know we're we're straying off robotics slightly here, but I think it is all part and parcel. And and so what what kind of things are you looking at there? And yeah, no, I think as, as kind of as I mentioned, I think that opportunity there is the the value you get from that data, and it, it's taking that and kind of informing your decisions. I think it's having that better planning, better view ahead to say, well, actually, with this data in, we can get the valuable things to then plan better for keeping people on shore. Um, obviously, the, the stay shore program is quite literal; <laughs> it's to keep people on shore um, as much as possible by using digitalization and robotics. Um, so, and it, but it's also making you smarter in your planning and your kind of, you've got that information before going to the asset and you know exactly what you're doing. Um, but I think that's the challenge of the, the huge amount of data being generated. It's the, it's kind of the service around that of interpretation um, and looking at that data to go right, that is the right value, that is the correct thing to do. So how does GE think about whether to, to take the risk of adopting a new technology, how does it balance those up against the potential um, benefits of adopting new technologies? Um, again, again, I think it's it's looking at those the benefits of anything that comes through and, and what we kind of get out of that effectively. Um, but I think as well, it's obviously that challenge of I think people are naturally resistant to change. Um, so I think it's you've got to have that kind of mindset to prepare people for change coming and kind of it's a lot of your communication around it as well to, to make people uh, realize that you know it is a big change that we're introducing but it's not the, the you know it's for the better yeah so do you think there's an element of perceived risk rather than than real risk there as well and um, yeah potentially because again i think if it's the first time you're doing something especially it's uh you know it's seen as a, a risk and you've got to uh, obviously do that proof of concept get your results and um kind of showcases to say look this is the, the better way of doing something that's an interesting point you make there it's kind of partly why we have the projects we have with the catapult it's about demonstration yeah. and showing that stuff works in the real world not in the lab um because 
the way I think you described it, maybe in a slightly more flattering way, I'd say there's, there's a race to second place. No one wants to be first with the new technology. Everyone yeah, wants to be yeah. the second person. Um, you know, you want to see it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then that's partly why we do these demonstration projects, so we can say this works not just you know in nice ideal test situations, but actually out in the North Sea, yeah. uh, where things are very different. And Sarah, I guess you're working right at the the bleeding edge of what might be possible, and that must come with an awful burden of proof to to show <laughs> you know this this is working this. Uh, yes, this yes. has potential. How do you manage that? Yeah, yeah. We we feel that one of the objective of our project is also yeah to show what is possible and uh, that a fully integrated uh, solution could be used for real. So we really don't focus much on using that robot or the other robot, but to show that uh, this comprehensive solution can be deployed in the real world. So this is why we work a lot with many companies and we work with the catapult and we try to do a lot of demos um, and to involve uh, the, the, the public as well because I think we need to raise awareness of what is possible so that, as I said, like people could trust the technology more and more. Um, and this issue of trust is, is always there. Like uh, even I remember when I was working at NASA, a lot of the engineers were not trusting the AI and autonomy technology so we had to really uh, have a lot of time in, in uh, developing a good interface a way um, in which uh, the operators uh, felt in charge of the mission even if their rovers were out there on mars and they were uh, in california so and you mentioned the safety case there and I'm interested to get everybody's thoughts on um regulations and the regulatory environment and i think a lot of the offshore regulations do relate to health and safety and things like that do you think um that that will push forward the adoption of robotics or do you think that actually the regulatory environment isn't quite the technology is developing faster than the regulations allow for um do you you think there's any conflicts there um, I think I think the regulation. Obviously, it's uh, we're all affected by it, although not working directly with it. But I think um, uh, I think regulation is, is there for a reason. Um, but I think it also kind of creates opportunities because you're working to very so items like you say. If it's looking at the health and safety, um, you're building something to kind of work to that and ensure that's um, being done. Um, so I think yeah, it, it's kind of a we all have to live by it. And, and but I think it would be a an opportunity rather than something that can hinder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think regulation can drive change. Um, I know um, <clears throat> we've done pieces of work where I've seen uh, data from previous inspections and it's been divers in places where I wouldn't want to be. Um, and we're doing the same thing with robots. And I think is in some extent, this is, this is jobs that people are carrying out that are clearly very dangerous and you just think, Sometimes you find out a person is doing this job and you think that a person shouldn't be there. That's just not a safe place for a person. So, um, But the, in some cases, the regulation can't be there to say prohibit a person being there because there isn't the technology. So in some places, there is this gap and it's an advantage. Um, in some cases, I think subsea, especially I think about because it's the area we work in most, is in a really good place. There's a really clear safety case, right? Don't want to put people underwater as much as you can avoid it. Um, you you partly want to get people onshore, right? So it's partly it's economic efficiency, but partly also safety, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's that as well. Um, and 
when I talk about safety, it's always worth mentioning. I always think about there's the safety of people, but there's also the safety of the environment. A lot of it is about this as well. It's protecting the natural environment, protecting the seabed when you're building, things like this. Um, and in some way, subsea robotics leads the way because I, I mentioned a um, CSO in a um, subsea robotics company and someone that doesn't know the industry goes, oh, cool, robots. And I go, actually, no, robots have been used subsea for tens of years now, right? It's an industry which is well ahead in use of robotics yeah. and regulation around that, you know, far more so than, say, drones, I'm sure. Um, the, the new thing is making them smarter. And I think that's an easier step to take than the step of getting the robots there in the first place, which has already been taken. And uh, I think that's there is going to be this iterative introduction of robotics. It's not going to be all of a sudden, uh, like you say, they've been used subsea for tens of years and they've grown and progressed and developed as technologies over time. And I think for the foreseeable future, there's always going to be uh, robotic operations in cooperation with human-led operations as well. Um, and I suppose there's going to have to be that element of collaborative working between humans and robots for uh, the foreseeable future until that picture Ian painted of 100 years time when um, it is all unmanned operations. And you, there are challenges there, aren't there, around humans and robots working together? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's a big challenge. So in in our uh, project, uh, Mimri, um, we really put a big focus on this because when I started uh, working on extreme environments, I thought um, that it would be quite easy to introduce robotics and AI because it's kind of an uncontroversial case, right? Because this these places are dangerous and so I thought oh operators will love that but yeah as I said before I uh, then discovered that uh, there is some resistance and there are a lot of people who actually take pride in doing a dangerous job like and and they like what they do and in the end this is what they've chosen so um, really for us um, to convince these people to to use robotics uh, it's a matter of uh, gaining uh, excitement and trust and I think this can be done with a good uh, interface between the robotic system and the human operator so um, in our future um, development, we think uh, of, for example, a virtual twin uh, so that the human operator is uh, on shore, but uh, getting a lot of data, we can kind of reconstruct uh, the environment that is offshore. And so the operator will be uh, engaged as if was there but in fact it is in a safe place so uh, but clearly uh, this is um, quite challenging to develop so uh, in my my particular focus in my research is to create a joint deliberation between the robot and the human operator so that they are both in charge of the mission mm -hmm. and so this planning technology needs to be able to you know be inspecting interrogated and changed by a human operator um, but also there is this element of how you present the information and to try to really immerse the operator in the actual operations that are performed by robots uh, offshore. Yeah, I think um, I mentioned earlier in terms of how we're talking about deploying camera systems first, you can work with humans and measure, and then it becomes the core of the system. I think it's a gradual thing, partly. Um, and I think um, Sort of the semi-supervised autonomy is a key thing. It's, it is the human working with, with the machine. It is in many cases it's kind of oversight. Um, in some ways, it's the technology is maybe not removing the human but moving the human, right? Getting mm -hmm. them onshore rather than yeah, offshore. Yeah, I think um, that's the key. And 
changing the kind of application of where the intelligence is. So if I consider about uh, processing video survey data on our online platform, well, you know, you might still want that surveyor who knows exactly what they're talking about to look exactly the right things, but they don't want to be skipping that five minutes of deck footage at the start of every video. They don't want to see the bit where the robot wasn't pointing in the wrong direction. That's, you know, that's part of their job, but maybe not the part of their job, if you see what I mean. So if the machine can then just show them, oh, hey, here's the bits you really want to look at, great, right? It's, um, and in some cases, yeah, it's moving the people, it's moving them onshore. And for some people, yeah, like you say, they take pride in their work and, you know, like the offshore uptake on their day rate, which yeah. is, you know, nice for people too. But for some people, it's nice to be home every day with their families. And that's a, you know, a different incentive for different people and yeah. not be out. Of hope. And I think these valuable skill sets that, that offshore technicians have, as you say, they're going to be redeployed Absolutely. Um, yes. because that expertise in, in understanding the problems that occur on an asset, whether it's below water, above water, um, that knowledge is still going to be crucial in, in understanding the data yeah, that's absolutely. coming back from the robotics. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it. You're kind of you getting more value out of your, your technician. Um, again, we're not going to take away manual and repetitive tasks. But, you know, you spend a lot of time tightening bolts on a turbine, that's a lot of man hours that could be used elsewhere, um, kind of in a more valuable service that you're performing. So I think it's kind of looking at that as well of where the value is. Um, and with the skill set, I think that's a, you're making a more highly specialized technician. And you mentioned the, the kind of bolt tightening there. Uh, so GE, I know, recently ran a, a couple of innovation challenges around uh, generator shoe bolt tightening and, and blade repair, both of which had a robotics focus. Yeah. Um, so clearly, though, you see that there's lots of opportunities for robotics in, in wind turbine uh, service and maintenance. Are those the two key areas for, for GE, or do you see other areas as well? Um, I think that's uh, in the future, other areas, obviously, the kind of focus of those challenges, which we ran late last year, um, were blade maintenance. It's obviously, again, it's playing into the safety factor of people hanging on ropes. Um, and again, with the ball tightening, uh, it's a very specific area that um, requires some rope access as well. So again, it, it's looking at that risk element um, of people hanging on ropes and taking it away from that to then could be automated with uh, robotics. Um, and obviously it was quite a interesting process going through that with uh, support of the Innovate UK. Um, obviously first time I'd uh, been involved in that type of process. So it was quite interesting from the application to pitch days with companies and then moving on in further discussions, uh, which we have ongoing at the moment. It's interesting you mention, um, you're talking about more specialist skills for um, uh, in terms of what's needed. Yeah. Whereas I kind of think in some ways the transition, because it won't be a sudden change to more robotics and autonomy, but the transition is driven by people with more sort of multidiscipline skills. So I think about, um, you know, a rock we have, you know, surveyors and RV operators, as well as the computer scientists and PhDs, and they're working together, and this is kind of key. And to sort of enable this transition, then you have, um, you know, someone who's maybe they've got the skills in RV piloting, and they're learning the skills in the autonomy mm -hmm. and things like that, so they can understand both sides to, mm -hmm. you know, enable that transition to happen sooner. And from the other point of view, have software engineers who've gone off and done their offshore training so they can safely go out and stuff, and not many software engineers get a chance to practice escaping a helicopter comes in the sea. So it's, it's a, a bit different. So I think, I think multidiscipline skills, it's, it's an additive thing. It's people with existing skill sets already performing these jobs, you know, gaining 
additional skills in different complementary areas that will enable this transition. But, but I think that's where the value comes in because I think if you have a person who has, like you the say, experience. an experience in the computer and uh, AI side and then you have them with offshore experience as well, you're making them a more valuable asset and that's kind and of... And the other way around. It. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's the things like that where you have the multifunction is the value you add to the kind of the service effectively. And so one side of the university is, is clearly research, which is the side you focus on. But the other side is uh, training and uh, skills and uh, education. Are you seeing more and more budding roboticists and computer scientists coming through? Because clearly this, there's a huge potential for uh, for people to, to take very highly skilled jobs in this area. Oh, yes. Uh, so uh, we have seen an increase um, uh, in the number of students in computer science in general, but especially in, in AI um, and in robotics uh, and machine learning. So we are offering, for example, Royal Holloway, um, two masters, one in AI, one in machine learning. We have so many applicants and uh, clearly a lot of new jobs are around this area. So we really need to train people uh, to do this mm -hmm. kind of job. So it's an exciting time for yeah. <laughs> university. And Ian, do you, as a, a you know rapidly growing mm. kind of technology focused company, are you managing to identify the right kinds of people with the right kind of skills to join your team? Yeah, so um, I think we do quite well, partly because it is, um, it's an attractive industry to work in at the moment, right? I mean, this is AI is a trendy topic in general, but this is an industry which is in the UK. The UK is one of the best places in the world to do it. And it's it's applied its real work. Like it's real robots doing real work. That's that's quite an important thing. And for a lot of people, that's very attractive. It's not some nice lab thing. It's, it's actual real work. And so in some sense, yes, we attract people because it's a cool thing to do. On the other hand, there are skills which are definitely not as readily available. Like, mm -hmm. for example, there are not many, um, if I say field roboticists, so that means someone that works on robotics actually out and, out and about, not just in a lab. Is, that's that's rare, very rare people. Very few people have done much field robotics because it's only been a thing for you know a handful of years. A couple of handfuls, maybe, depending. <laughs> um, I wanted to say that um, I, I think it's true. We see a lot of people who come from different disciplines that want to retrain in AI. And, and that's very nice because they bring their uh, previous experience in other fields and can transfer this in uh, how to develop technology. So that's also a very interesting shift. I guess for the last 15 minutes, it'd be interesting to think about what's possible in this space. Put your your crazy hats on and think, right, in 2030, 2050, what are we going to see being deployed in offshore wind farms? Uh, obviously, MIMRI is a very, very ambitious project looking at um, deploying multiple types of robotics from an autonomous platform. Um, when, when do you think that might become a, a kind of commercial reality in offshore wind farms? Yeah, uh, so in, in these projects, just to clarify, we are looking at an integrated solution. So uh, we have an uh, autonomous surface vehicle uh, that is like a sort of mothership that will go to the uh, wind farm. And then uh, we have uh, our team uh, of drones that has to do like inspection uh, of the wind farms. And then we have also crawling rob robots that are supposed to um, to 
climb the turbines and uh, do some repairing jobs. And so we also have a manipulator that can do really fine uh, manipulation tasks. So really there is the whole spectrum of uh, robotics uh, and um, AI. So um, we, our goal is to deliver a proof of concept, but clearly to make this uh, reality and make this use by a number of stakeholders will take a, a long time. And if we think about the interaction with also the human operators, there are a lot of challenges that are common to other fields in AI. For example, the best would be to use uh, natural language uh, for communication with the robots, but Clearly, this is a big challenge to really do um, natural language processing at a level in which there are no misunderstandings because in, in extreme environments, this is crucial. Uh, so, yeah, there are still lots of challenges to. Well, I to suppose a lot of people at home will have first hand experience of that with a, an Alexa or yeah, a Google. Yeah, absolutely. Home uh, but uh, as we said before, in extreme environments, uh, risk is, is a big factor. So you really don't want to have a misunderstanding with your, your robot uh, offshore. Yeah, so um, their kitchen probably has a better internet connection than the, the bottom <laughs> exactly. of the Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think. I don't think you have to be thinking too crazily to be thinking 10 years out. I mean, if you think about the lifespan of these assets, these things get built and put in the sea and they're expected to operate for 30, 40 years or more. So 10 years time, we're still talking about wind farms as currently built. Um, so I, I think there's actually a really interesting question here is when do we start to see if, what I think of as affordances for autonomy in constructed mm -hmm. wind farms, constructed turbines and cells. So um, to explain what I mean there by affordance is something to support it. So for an example, an affordance for the human that is on wind turbines is you get a ladder up the side of the monopile, right? It helps the human perform their task. So, um, but at some point we'll start to see, because of autonomy, we'll start to see um, everything from the turbine to the monopile to the whole farm built differently to enable affordances, to enable more autonomy. That could be garages for resident EVs. Mm -hmm. It could be other things we haven't even imagined. And I think um, thinking to the future is uh, an interesting question is to think, um, you know, much further future, when do we start building wind farms differently because of the autonomy AI? I mean, maybe to some extent you're already thinking about how can we build turbines, how can we run things differently with this world of autonomy? But um, to actually answer your question rather than give you a new one, uh, I'd say 10 years time, um, we're looking at online streamed intelligence. So it's not just about the raw data, it's about getting useful insights that are streamed to you live. Yeah. It's not the raw data, it's multi-agent, it's collaboration between robotics. I mean, we're already delivering service to customers where we have drones topside and robot subsea, but it's not coordinated is mm -hmm. not autonomous but more autonomy there um so yeah i'd say and that's i think that affordance piece is is incredibly interesting because you see a lot of uh, legged robots being developed for instance uh that have to deal with with steps and steps are a, a human construct in effect aren't they there because we have two feet that, that go one in front of the other and if those steps weren't there it'd be a much easier task for a robot to move around uh, a structure so I, I think there has to be a, a point at some at some stage where companies begin to think about okay, well, how will next year's maintenance team move around the the structure, not our current maintenance team? Yeah. So I know I know to some extent, Memory Project, you are thinking about how things might change in terms of this integrated vision of autonomy. But I, I'd say our GE thinking about how things might change when you've got more autonomy. I, mean, I say autonomy in the broadest sense. It could be data intelligence. It could be actual robotics. Uh, it's it's been considered, and like I say, it's kind of part of the roadmap and kind of think that thinking. Um, but I think obviously touching on some of the points, uh, I think obviously 
a lifespan of uh, wind farm is potentially 30 years. And obviously, like you say, they have steps if we're going autonomous robots. Legged robots is obviously a thing um, that you have to consider because obviously the current conditions is what you have to kind of think of. <coughs> um, but I think in a way, at the moment, no idea is fanciful. It's just getting that kind of, uh, it's shown it works. And obviously thinking about the existing structures and um, what is there now. Um, but then also the flip side is I think if, um, you know, we, we would all do to have flying cars by now if we believe some predictions <laughs> from previous. So I think it's also that if anything's possible and it's uh, it's thinking about existing structures that are there and like you say, some of the infrastructure also needs to be to be there. I mean, internet connection is obviously a big thing if you're wanting to get that information back to onshore and kind of thinking about that as well as uh, having a robot that can, you know, navigate steps and do the tasks that you've set it to do. Um, so I think that's also a consideration for the future. So uh, that's obviously one of the next steps. Yeah. So I think a, a, a trend that, that both you and Ian touched on there was that integration of different systems. Do you think that's probably the next uh, big step? We're seeing individual robotic systems being deployed, yeah. but having them come together and, and act not necessarily as one, but in a coordinated manner. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Because, uh, for example, in Mimri, we are not really focusing that much on the single robot because these pieces are, are there already, more or less. But uh, the most of the work is about the coordination between the different robotic systems and how they perform a job together to achieve a shared goal. Um, and there are a lot of challenges because I don't know if you have a crawling robot and a, a drone is delivering this robot on the play you don't want to drop <laughs> drop it right so you have to have a lot of mechanisms to yeah, I think put the robot very upset if it's damaged <laughs> by a falling exactly. robot exactly not just me uh, obviously the owners <laughs> so, um, but, but I think that concept of the more things a robot can do the more value it has um, so I think that kind of thinking adds a lot and makes a, a more attractive proposition to say well it's not just doing one thing and you need multiple kind of robots going off in different directions doing different things it's a he has one system that can do that multiple tasks you've set yeah um so i think kind of that consideration is kind of where the value is added but um it's interesting when you think about the um this integration the collaboration there's a, there's a kind of we've been talking about the technology but there's quite strong business reasons why you might start to see this so um if, if you consider a risk-averse industry procuring services on their own farm, say that's generically what's happening, it's you get to a state where, in some respects, I'd expect to see some sort of collaboration encouraged because um, do you want to buy the autonomy and intelligence service from someone that already supplies you and has a proven capacity in one domain moving into another domain, or do you want to have a completely different supplier? Um, it's maybe an open question there, but I mean, I can see there being strong business reasons to go for integrated collaborative approaches because you take something that you know and understand in one restricted domain. So you maybe apply robotics in some narrow area where you can, you know, make the safety case, you can make the business case, and then you say, you know, you expand from there. So you kind of naturally, as a result of the sort of, business realities of this end up with this collaborative system, perhaps. I mean, maybe it, I mean, I kind of think of a um, corollary where I think a lot of autonomy and technology adoption is not driven by the technology, it's driven by other factors. So my favorite example of this is self-driving cars. I fully believe that'll be driven by calling your insurance company for renewal and they say, will you be driving the car yourself, sir? And you say yes, and they <laughs> suck through their teeth and it costs you more. But I mean, it might come down to that because um, a lot of the issue around 
wind farms and their construction maintenance is around risk on the finance required to build them. And if you can drive down that level of risk with better data, better insight into the condition of your wind farm through the use of robotics and autonomy, then the finance becomes cheaper, the wind farm becomes cheaper, the cost of energy to the customer at home becomes cheaper. So, um, yeah, I think the future, the, the, there is a technology which is necessary for the change, but the drivers might be business drivers in some cases. And so uh, autonomous systems are by their name autonomous. They make their own decisions um, to, to varying or lesser degrees, depending on uh, how how they sit on the range from kind of automated to fully autonomous. And you can show that an autonomous system makes the right decision once fairly straightforwardly. You can ask it to do something and it track its progress. How do you show that it does the right thing every time and that it's always going to make the right decision? Because that's a key factor when a customer is considering risk. So personally, I um, developed this AI planning technology that uh, um, is uh, model-based. So it's very different from machine learning that is model-free. So uh, in a way, um, we um, use um, mathematical optimization and logic. So if you have a plan, uh, you can really demonstrate that uh, starting from this initial state and going to this goal state, uh, this was the best path. And then clearly maybe you have to um, diverge a bit from the best course of action because I don't know, there might be uh, weather conditions that not allow you to do really the best um, possible uh, part, but still you can explain uh, why you have taken a different course of action in that particular circumstance. So this is why in Mimri we put a lot of effort in planning because it's really um, unexplainable technology. So the operator uh, can be involved in this joint deliberation with the system in which the operator can also decide to um, maybe take a higher risk, but go for uh, the most efficient way to do th things or um, decide that doesn't want to risk much. And so maybe take a longer course of action that still achieve the goal. Um, so um, AI planning is a really explainable technology. And this is uh, why we want to use it in extreme environments where it's very important that uh, before and after the mission, yeah. uh, you can really inspect the system and understand why decisions were made in, in that way. And that explainable AI is something a lot of people are looking at, isn't it? Yeah, because exactly. it helps with that trust exactly. issue that you talked about yes. at the start and yeah. um, will help people to, to trust the systems exactly. that they're buying. So, yeah, I think there's the, there's the, there's the technology, there's, there's two possible answers to this. There's the technology answer, there's how do you, how do you verify and validate and test these are all different things. These autonomous systems get proven correctness. But then there is also um, other ways, if you consider the whole system, how you can mitigate the risk and avoid the problems. And this is, this is like, it's easy to think, oh, we need new approaches to new technology, but also old approaches, like the ways that you, may, you mitigate risks to safety, you ensure that harmful cases just cannot occur. So to can give a sort of simple example, you can imagine a robotic intervention task um, where you have the problem of, well, what if the robot goes wrong and knocks into something and breaks the export cable, say, and you've now unplugged your wind farm, that would be a very bad thing and very expensive, so we don't want that to happen. Um, 
And then you could say, well, I'll verify and validate my system and prove that I'll make no bad decisions and so on. Or there's maybe an alternate approach where you just say, well, if the robot doesn't mass over a certain amount, then it just doesn't have the physical energy to cause that thing to fail. You know, you can have these layers of protection and they're not all around the technology. Some can be around the engineering. Some can be around the ways of operation. So you kind of say, and there's arguments both ways for this. I think an interesting one is if, if a task is in some way safety critical, does that mean it absolutely should have a human in the loop? Or does it mean it absolutely should not have a human in the loop mm -hmm. uh, in some cases because you can't and there are you can come up with examples either way where you think oh no a human is unreliable in this decision case and, or in some cases where the human absolutely must be involved so I, I think you the answer is you consider the verification validation of the systems you also consider how they're operated how they're deployed the whole environment and that example you gave there it, it, it's almost just common sense uh, a, a three kilogram drone is going to make very little impact, even if it does crash into a, a 400 ton offshore structure. Mm. Um, so as uh, when you're thinking about these new technologies uh, and the verification, validation, testing, demonstration of them, what do you need to see before you're beginning to get interested in, in looking at these technologies? Um, yeah, so I suppose it's, it's a Obviously, we kind of see different things at different stages. So we see things. If, I think if it's a good idea, it's the right. What support could G potentially give if if we uh, kind of buy in? Uh, but also, I think it's it's proof of concept. So obviously, a demonstration as we mentioned before, it's showing that it, you know it doesn't just work on paper. There's a real life example, um, and it's kind of a taking that proof of concept and then applying it offshore to give confidence. So I think it's building confidence throughout the the process to say. Yeah, right. On paper, great works. We've had a demonstration, right? Great. We've seen it in the real world. Now let's give it into the well controlled condition, should I say, when it's a demonstration, but then into the real world and kind of you're building up that confidence and you're learning at each stage to feed back into the loop to give you that confidence to move forward. And that's the same approach that you've been taking as yeah, well, isn't it? Yeah, precisely. I mean, we had the explicit goal of the projects of the capital, the demonstrator projects, so to show the proof of concept of the technology, the proof of the technology in a representative environment, and the proof in the real environment. So we've gone from testing in your docs of Blythe, where you can get some really nice metrics on the system, because it's effectively a bit of the sea that you can drain, and we can use standard survey LIDAR and get a known benchmark to show the accuracy of our systems. And then we go on to your offshore MetMast in the North Sea itself, um, alongside our, our activities at apart from that. So yeah, it's, it's, this demonstration is important. It's the, you talk about deploying in controlled environments. Again, this is what I was saying around controlling the risk around it. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, we see this kind of as absolutely key when you're doing something new. And it's part, part of why we do the operations in the service provision as well as the technology development is it means we can control how technology is introduced and deployed to make it safe, to make it palatable for an end customer. And um, I think in some cases it might be driven by an absolute need. I mean, I see the cost of energy that has been promised for future developments of wind farms and think there is absolutely no way this is getting met. If things are done the current way. There needs to be new ways of work. There needs to be safer ways. So in some ways, um, it, it maybe just needs to be better than it is currently. Like you maybe can't aim for perfect. But um, then you get into interesting questions like how good is however you some task you want to replace with autonomy, how, how good or how safe is it or how reliable is it currently? And oftentimes there are not numbers for that, right? It's um, an interesting thought experiment is how, how much better than, how, how good does something need to be to replace the human? How do you trust it? I mean, an easy example most people relate to is autonomous cars, right? How many accidents per million miles does an autonomous vehicle have to have before you trust it? And you have the statistics for humans and the computer is already way better, but people don't trust them. It's not just that's not just enough. There's, there needs to be something more there, and I'm sure you could talk for a long time on issues of trust. It's uh, 
it is a really complex issue. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe it is one of the most important issues mm-hmm. in, in adoption for yeah. these technologies. If you want to hear more from the debate, you can watch the full 90-minute discussion by following the YouTube link in the show notes. And thank you very much for listening. You can also find out more news on renewable energy at ore.catapult.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at orecatapult.